0: Please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter three, verses one through four. Mount Vernon, there are a few things that give my wife Erin and I more pleasure than worshiping with you all like we are today. Uh, I want you to know that we love you, that we regularly pray for you, and we have you in our hearts. And uh, as we saw a moment ago, I I bring you warm uh, regards from Emmanuel Church of Winston-Salem What I didn't get a chance to say a moment ago is just how indebted we are to you as a church and to your pastors here at Mount Vernon. Uh, There's not a week that goes by where we're not in either direct or indirect thanks for things you guys do for us. Uh, I want to just express my gratitude to you. Mount Vernon remains a profound support in so many ways, and it's a privilege to bring to you God's word this morning. Paul in his letter to Colossians in verse chapter 3, verse 1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask you now as your people that we might be filled with all knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Father, in order that we would walk worthy of you, that we would walk fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work, and Lord, increasing in knowledge. Father, it is our deepest need this morning to behold Christ, to behold Christ in the preaching of your word, Lord, and be changed by that magnificent sight. Father, we need your spirit to accomplish the work that only he can accomplish. Father, we pray now that sin would be convicted, that your saints would be edified, and that we would walk worthy of Christ. We ask all of this, not to our own praise, but to your praise and glory, Alone. I pray in the precious name of Christ. Amen. When I went to college, I was an economics major. And for those who don't know, economics is the study of the allocation of scarce resources. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Get to learn about economics. One of the main assumptions of economics is that all people, they are rational consumers, and as rational consumers, they they respond to incentives and consequences. That is all to say that people do certain things because certain things are true. People do certain things because certain things are true. This is absolutely fundamental to human experience. How do I know this? Most all of us are going to eat lunch this afternoon why will we eat lunch this afternoon? Children, why will you eat lunch this afternoon? Well, you'll do so because of the reality that is the truth that you're hungry, and if you don't respond to your hunger pangs, that feeling of hunger, sadly, you will eventually die of starvation, so you have to respond to that truth, that reality of your hunger. A young woman studies hard through graduate school because she's promised a certain job upon graduation. A middle-aged man takes medicine because he is a diabetic. A father loves his son for no other reason than the reality, the truth, that that boy is his son. My simple point is that truth changes things. Empirical facts inform actions. Reality changes behavior. Truth changes things. This morning, as you know, we're focusing on Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. And in the book of Colossians, chapter 3 comes as a bit of a turning point in the letter, And Paul, in much of this letter, he's been addressing certain false teaching in Colossae. We don't have time to get into the depths of what that teaching was all about. Neither do I really have time to summarize the book of Colossians. But if I were to summarize, there are two sweeping points, at least in the book of Colossians, that we need to have a grasp on, two salient points. And the first is that the Lord Jesus Christ is supreme. Lord Jesus, He is Lord of creation. He's Lord over the cosmos, and even more importantly, He's Lord of the church. The other point would be that Christ is sufficient. Jesus is enough, brothers and sisters. Jesus is complete. Because Christ is complete in every way, the Christian, the Bible would have us know, is complete in Him. The Christian is not only subject to Christ, but He is one with Him. The Christian is fulfilled by him in whom the fullness of the deity dwells. The Christian life is one captivated, shaped, and molded by Christ, and the Christian is inextricably united to him. And it seems within the text that we're reading this morning, that we're considering this morning, Paul wants his readers, that is the Colossian believers, to know exactly how they relate to every facet of the Lord's ministry, every facet of Christ's ministry. Mount Vernon, Christ is our life. This changes every facet, every square inch of our life. You see, because Christ died, you have died. Because Christ has been risen, you have been raised. And because Christ is ascended and seated at God's right hand, our mind is to be ascended with him in heaven. Because Lord Jesus Christ will return again, we eagerly await his appearance when we too will be with him in glory. Christ is our life. Within this text, we're given two commands. We're given commands to seek and to set our minds on the things that are above. These are what we call imperatives. They're commands. But we'd be wise to notice, Paul, he doesn't just nakedly proclaim these commands. He doesn't offer them without any context. Rather, he grounds these commands in truth. He grounds these commands to facts, to reality. There are indicatives that ground and motivate our obedience to these imperatives. So because of that, in the time remaining, I want us to consider this text under two simple headings. The First heading is Fundamental Commands, and the second heading is Fundamental Truths. So consider first with me Fundamental Commands. As I say, Paul, he offers two commands in this text, however, before I can even get into those commands, I have to say that these commands, they're offered to a qualified group of people. Look at verse one, Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ. Some translators say, having been raised with Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Brothers and sisters, there are two types of people in the world. There are the raised and the unraised. There's the dead and there's the alive. There's the old and there's the new. And for the Christian, a miracle has transpired. That's not just a figure of speech. A miracle has transpired. A miracle which the Holy Spirit has infused life into a dead soul. We call it conversion, right? We call it regeneration, salvation. That moment that I was saved, that moment I passed from death to life. Brothers and sisters, when a person becomes a Christian, that person dies. They die and they rise again. They're given new life. They're changed and they're given new affections. And in Colossians, Paul, by God's grace, he explains exactly how this happens. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. Through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. How is it that dead people rise again? Again? How is it that people are regenerated, brothers and sisters? Christians are saved by grace through faith, by grace through faith in Christ alone. And I want to say this early in this message, because I know there are unbelievers here. And if you're not a Christian here, you should know we're glad you're here. But it's our job as a Bible-believing church to also tell you the truth. And I want you to know that this text in Colossians, it's a text that's actually addressed to Christians. It's a text that calls on Christians to change and to grow. It's a text that that calls on them to understand their identity. And it's a text that says things that are true, but are only true of Christians. And I have to tell you the truth. If you are not in Christ, if you're not a Christian, you have not been raised. And you can't meaningfully change without Jesus. You can't seek and set your minds on things that are above because you're not in Christ. Christ. The beautiful thing is that all can change. That can all change if you lay hold of Christ in faith. That can all change if you repent of your sins. That can all change if you're united to the Lord by believing on his name. The Bible says if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And what is faith? Faith is whole soul reliance on the Lord Jesus. It's where we trust in him, where we believe in him, and we rely on him alone. And I promise you, as a minister of the gospel, if you trust in Christ, you will be changed. And you will experience all the benefits, the glorious benefits of this text. Paul here, he is addressing Christians. He is speaking to raised, that is, risen saints. And he gives two commands. The first command, to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and the second, to set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. A few things we should notice about this command, these commands is that they are both distinct, at the same time they're related and inseparable. They're, they're two different commands, but they're also quite obviously related. What do I mean? Well, they're distinct in this way. Seeking involves hands and feet. Seeking involves a way of life. The Lord Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount to to seek first the kingdom of God. Now, setting one's mind involves an entire orientation of one's thoughts, a change in thinking and desires and mindset. So, you can see the commands are distinct, but they're also related and inseparable. You see, one cannot seek something he's not thinking about. Neither can somebody really meaningfully Think about something, or, or 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 set their mind on something that they're not seeking with their life. You know, we just started football season. I think of quarterbacks. When Tom Brady throws the ball down the field, and he's throwing the ball down the field to get a touchdown, he's not doing that without making it his goal to score. Neither can he meaningfully make it his goal and set his mind on scoring without ever throwing the ball down the field. He's got to seek it. So you see, seeking with the life and setting with the mind—they're engaged. They're 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 inseparable. What Paul is calling for here is an orientation of one's entire being, for hands that are ready, for sights that are set, for hearts that are angled, for minds that are fixed on the things that are above. And as a good Bible reader, you might be wondering, what are these things that are above? What does Paul mean when he says that we should seek that which is above? What could it mean to set one's mind on things that are above? Could Paul be wanting us to gain a greater glimpse of heaven or a sweeter foretaste of the redemption to come? Could he be calling on us to to attain a greater fitness for glory? That's to say that we we should grow in holiness. Should we be laying up more excellent treasure in heaven? I don't know. I don't know exactly what Paul means by the things that are above, but look at what Paul does say. He says, seek the things that are above where Christ is, where Christ is, seated at God's right hand. There's a 90s band I used to listen to a lot, and they had a song in it, and the lyric of the song says, it turns out it's not where, but who you're with that really matters. Jake Chandler knows what I'm talking about. It turns out it's not where, but who you're with that really matters. See, brothers, you get the point. Intrinsic to the where of these things that are above is the who of the person of Christ himself. It's Christ himself who is the one who is seated at God's right hand on whom our minds are to be set. It's Christ who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It's Christ who created all things. It's Christ who is above all dominions, rulers, and authorities. It is Christ who is head of the church. It's Christ who has made peace by the blood of his cross. See, it is Christ who captures our gaze and satisfies our souls, it is Christ, the Lord Jesus himself, on whom our minds are to be set. And notice what Paul says about Christ. He says, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at God's right hand. And What is God doing at God's right hand? We know God, the, Jesus is engaged in a present ministry at this very moment. He is at God's right hand performing his high priestly ministry, where he is interceding on behalf of all those who are in Christ. And it's because of that ministry that the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 says, since then we have such a great high priest, you could say, since we have the Lord Jesus at God's right hand, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Christian, are you in need? Do you need grace? Do you need mercy? You need to approach Christ. Scripture ta- calls on us to focus on the Lord Jesus. Because He is at God's right hand, we can approach the throne of grace. The author of Hebrews later exhorts in chapter 12, he says, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The idea is this, as Christ is presently seated at God's right hand, our minds are to be indelibly set, they're to be indelibly fixed and fixated and focused on Christ himself. Christian, where is your mind? Where are your thoughts? When you think about nothing, what do you think about? Brothers and sisters, these imperatives, they're exactly that, they're imperatives. They're commands. To seek and to set, it's not a suggestion. These are not lofty disciplines for super-Christians and they're not crafty ways of attaining our best life now. Rather, they are commands. There are commands for all of us in Christ. As risen people, our thoughts must rise. As citizens of heaven, our thoughts must be heavenward. And as sojourners in exiles, we must render ourselves wholly surrendered to Christ. If you're a Christian and you want to know, how can I put off my sin? How How can I grow in Christ? How do I put on righteousness? Brothers and sisters, this will only happen through fellowship with Christ. It only will happen through a meaningful engagement with him, an engagement with his person, where we abide in him and we experience him and we get insight into his character. This is how we grow. This is how we change from one degree of glory to another. And friends, this will rarely happen without practice. This will rarely happen without sweat. If you feel you're having to struggle to grow in holiness, that's how it's supposed to go. It's written into the DNA of the Christian life. This will rarely happen without reminding, without spirit-filled, grace-empowered effort. We must set, we must seek, we must lay hold of Christ. This is not optional. And brothers and sisters, you know this is why we need each other. This is why we need the church of God. If there's anything we've learned in this COVID season, is that we need the church We need brothers and sisters who will rally around us and point us to what this is all about. We are to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and to be changed by sight of His glory. But should we need any more basis for these commands, any more grounding, any more foundation, any motivation for these commands, Paul, he shares with us three fundamental truths. So consider with me heading number two, fundamental truths. As I said, there are three fundamental truths laid forth in this text, and they all are in reference to time. They're all in reference to time, and they're all in reference to the believer's relationship to Christ. Brothers and sisters, you see, these things that Paul shares in Colossians 3, what Christ has done, what He is doing, and what He will do, they're facts. They're truths, they're not clever myths, they're not stories, they're not tall tales to which we attach moral lessons, they are truths. Some people would refer to these as indicatives. You know what an indicative statement is? Children, young people, I wonder if you know what an indicative sentence is, an indicative statement. Sometimes kids know grammar better than adults. Uh, An indicative is a statement that indicates something that is. So for example, the sky is blue. We all accept this, I trust. The sky is blue, it's non-negotiable. The sky is blue regardless of how you feel about blueness, regardless of what your opinion about the sky is. The sky is blue regardless of how long you've known about the sky's blueness, and regardless of what you will think about the sky in the future. It's an indicative statement, the sky is blue. Now perhaps the blueness of the sky has little bearing on your life. But brothers and sisters, the truth in this text the facts in this text, the realities in this text are life-changing, and they're to have a profound effect upon the believer. The first truth is the truth about the past. The truth about the past is that the Christian has died. This text would have us know that, Christian, in Christ, you have died. Your relationship with life has fundamentally changed. Yes, breath remains in your lungs, blood still flows through your veins, and your heart still physically beats, and your mental, mental faculties, they remain intact. Nevertheless, you've died. Apostle Paul is quite plain. He says it right there, for you have died in verse 3. And brothers and sisters, this death has both objective and experiential elements. It has both an objective sense and an experiential elements as well. What do I mean? Well, it's objective in this sense, that we, by God's grace and His glory, we have been legally forever justified and declared righteous in God's sight. Amen? In Colossians 2 verse 13, Paul says, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Then verse 14, how? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. Christian, in a very real way, you can sing with the hymn writer that your sin, or oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, your sin not in part but the whole, it's been nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. This is objectively true for those who are in Christ. And why I stress that point is we can so s- soon forget it our joy ebbs and flows, doesn't it? We sense our sin that clings to us so closely. We cry out with the Psalm writer in, in Psalm 65 that my, my, my sin prevails against me. We can feel like this isn't true of us, but this is objective. If your faith is laid hold upon the person of the work in Christ, it's as certain as money in the bank. You are right with him, and there's nothing that can change that. This truth, this death, it is objective and it is true, praise God, also in experiential uh, ways as well. The Christian has died to certain things. This is seen throughout the New Testament and seen quite clearly in Colossians. You as a believer, you, you have died, and you continually die to certain things. You know that phrase, dead to me? He or she's dead to me? I hope nobody's ever said that about you. I hope you've never said that about anybody else. I grew up a New York Mets fan. I'm very sorry. I wish I could change that about myself, but a leopard can't change his spots. My brother knows what I'm talking about. We, we, you're born into this. My dad's from New York. It's just the way it is. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as, as Mets as lovable losers. I don't know how much of that's true except for the loser part. I don't know if we're lovable or not. You can decide. But I can remember growing up, Every year, around the All-Star break, my dad getting up angry from the couch after the Mets lose and saying, this team is dead to me. This team is dead to me. So I suppose you think he's a lovable loser. Yeah, this team is dead to me. What did he mean when he said, to, said that? I mean, I could tell you he was completely fruitless because he would, he would return back and watch them in the spring, but when he said that, what did he mean? He meant I'm done. <laughs> I'm fed up with this team. I'm no longer going to watch this team. They no longer have a sway with me. They no longer have influence on me. I don't care about them anymore. I'm done with this team. They are dead to me. Brothers and sisters, that might seem like a silly example, but it's not unlike what we do with so many things in our life. As Christians, we've made a fundamental break with so many things in our life. We've died to elemental spirits and human tradition, Colossians would tell us. Colossians 2, verse 20, Paul says, if with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Why are you submitting to man-made human tradition? You've died to those things. You're alive in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. A Christian has also died to empty philosophy. We see this in Colossians 2, verses 8 and 9. But closer to this text, our text in Colossians 3, Paul would have us know that Christians have died to sin and the world. Christians have died to sin. Colossians 1, Paul says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Some of you remember what it was like to be alienated, to be hostile in mind. Your mind is being enslaved to the devil and to perform evil deeds. But Paul says, we have died to these things. And be, we have been raised to newness of life and we have been presented to God as holy and blameless. And it's also clear that the Christians not only died to sin, but they have died to the world. Look at verse two and three of Colossians three. Paul says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. Friends, it's clear that there are even non-sinful, yet earthly things that no longer have sway. They no longer have pull on the Christian. You see, this is why the apostle Paul, he pits the fact that we have died against the command to no longer set the mind on earthly things. You see that? There's, There's contrast there. We're to no longer focus on earthly things. Why? Because we have died. We have died to this world. The idea is this, A Christian, because of his union with Christ in his death, has made a fundamental break with the world. The sins, the lusts, the cares, the concerns of the world, they no longer govern his thinking and actions. The Christian no longer looks like the world. He no longer talks like the world. He no longer smells like the world. He's no longer caught up in earthly things. And why? It's because with respect to sin and worldly things, he has died. He shares in Christ's death And to the fullest extent, he is alive in Christ. And this means a distinct divorce from the world. And this means it includes a profound shift in focus away from earthly things. I fear that one of Satan's most subtle yet insidious attacks against the church is through the sin of worldliness. Worldliness has infiltrated the church in profound ways, in sobering ways. So many non-Christians, they look at their Christian friends, whether they're merely professing or sincere, they look at their Christian friends and they look at their worldly friends and they see no difference. They see no distinction. They see nothing that separates them from the world. Brothers and sisters, Christian, consider what would it look like in your life to die to the world? Remember the commands in this text are to seek that which is above and to set our minds on that which is above, to seek Christ and to set our minds on Christ. Think, if the action of seeking, the action of seeking Christ, if that looks like something in your life, what would it look like in your life to unseek the world? If the command to set one's mind on things that are above, if that looks like something, what would it look like in your life to unset your mind on earthly things. Christian, what are those things in your life that you must die to? What are even those good things that have captured your heart? What are those things that have stolen your devotion to Christ? Could it be your children? Could it be your money, retirement, vacations, land, houses? Brothers and sisters, this earth is not our home. The Bible says that we have died, therefore let us live as dead men and women. Namely, those who have died to sin and the world and have been raised, have been raised to righteousness. The truth about the past is that we have died. We have died and gloriously been raised with Christ. Consider secondly, the second truth, the truth about the present. The truth about the present is that the Christian's life is hidden with Christ. Paul says in verse 3 that our life is hidden with Christ in God. I think it's always important to ask the Bible questions. What does Paul mean by the word hidden? Have you thought about that? What, what is Paul getting at when he uses the word hidden? This is a word we actually don't see Paul use very much in his writings, but he's, he's getting at something here. Well, friends, there are two obvious dimensions to the word hidden. The first is the idea of security. Perhaps you've had the experience of of hiking, hiking on a mountain, and you've you've suddenly felt rain come upon you, and and you have to go take shelter in a cave in the cleft of a rock. Well, that's in a very real way a picture for the gospel, right? We find refuge in, in Christ. We find solace and peace and security in Christ. We hide in Christ. He's a hiding place for us. We sing that in the hymn, Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. We hide in Christ. There's a level of security we find in Christ. But there's also, when we think of the word hidden, this idea of this idea of concealment. And I think this is actually even closer to what Paul is getting at here. Paul seems to be contrasting the hiddenness of our life in Christ with that which is to be revealed in the future, you see. He's contrasting that which that which we cannot see about our life in Christ at the moment with that which is to be so clear and revealed in the future. The idea is that what we are, who we are, and in a very real way where we are cannot be seen. It's in Christ. And maybe that seems a little esoteric, a little out there, seems, seems kind of weird to you, but this is actually Christianity 101, See, none of us have seen Jesus physically, right? If you have, please talk to me after this service. I really want to talk to you, I have a lot of questions. But none of us have seen Jesus physically. We walk by faith, not by sight, the Bible says. And though it's nonetheless true that we are united with Christ and our life is in Him and with Him, we live in the in-between right now. We live in what theologians call the already not yet. That is, there are those things that we gloriously experience about our salvation now, but there's so much more to be revealed ahead. There's so much coming. The best is yet to come. Brothers and sisters, at this very moment, our life in a very real way is hidden with Christ in God. And all the more reason that we must seek that which is above. All the more reason that we must set our minds on that which is above. See, the fact that the life is hidden The fact that our lives as Christians is hidden in Christ is why Paul, he has to rally the Colossian Christians to a place of eager expectancy. See, this is what a a good coach does. A good coach doesn't need to remind his players of what's happening right in front of them. They know what's going on. A good boxing coach doesn't need to remind his fighter that he's being punched. He knows that, thank you very much. He knows he's being punched. What a good coach will do, he'll remind that fighter what he's fighting for. We remind that fighter of the prize, what lays ahead. Brothers and sisters, you see, the unseen competes with that which is seen. It competes with that which is around us. This is why the Christian life can be so hard. Yes, my life is hidden and secure in Christ. Christ, my life, is at God's right hand, but my sin is right here. Temptation is right here. The world is right here. I can taste it. I can smell it. I can see it. Entertainment is right here. Earthly cares are right here. Yet, friends, we must know that all of those things are passing away. And our life is hidden in Christ. Our truest life is with the Lord Jesus himself, with God. Even more than this, Paul tells us just a profound statement that Christ is our life. Brothers and sisters, where is your life? Who are you? God's word reveals our identity to us. It tells us who we are and tells us that we are united to Christ and that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, that He is our life. You might be wondering, what what should this look like? How how should this affect a person? When I thought about that, I, I, I thought about a man in my church named Scott, and Scott, he's in his 70s, he's in his early to mid 70s, and he serves our congregation in numerous ways. Scott, he's dedicated his retirement to kingdom endeavors, and he's diligent in evangelism, he's diligent in missions, and diligent in his own growth in holiness. And he's an example to me of how every Christian should use their golden years. And when, what, a lot, what a lot of people actually don't know about Scott Scott was once a vice president of one of the largest banks in the country. He's a very wealthy man. And the world would look at Scott and say, that's an important man. That's a guy I should saddle up next to. That's a guy I should get to know. That's how the world would look at Scott. But brothers and sisters, when I look at Scott, though I'm thankful for his success in the business world, I don't think there's Scott the millionaire. I don't think there's Scott the, the business tycoon. There's Scott, the, 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 the guy who, can, who knows all about business and banking, I think that's Scott the Christian. I think that's Scott the saint. That's Scott the follower of Jesus. That's Scott the believer. And why do I think that about Scott? I think that because Christ is his life and he's made that apparent. He's made that in, apparent in every moment of his life and what he does. And he understands the truth about his present, that his life is hidden with Christ in God and that Christ is his life he's fixed his gaze upon Jesus and it's clear that the Lord Jesus is his life and brothers and sisters if you are in Christ the same is true of you truth about the present is so our life is hidden in Christ consider the last truth truth number 3 the truth about the future truth about the future is that the christian will appear with Christ in glory. Yes, Christ is not visible to us. Yes, we deal with the unseen world, but one day, one day it will all be seen. Verse 4 says, when Christ who is our life appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. Mount Vernon, just one moment. Just one moment in the presence of the physical risen Christ will make your entire life seem to be a vapor. It will reveal your life, your physical life, to be what it really is, just a vapor. Something like a, like a hallway that's leading to a grand banquet hall. And yes, some of us had nicer hallways than others and some of us had poorer hallways than others. But we will arrive and sit at the heavenly feast with the Lord Jesus Christ our King. We will be fully acquainted with our master. Brothers and sisters, the text tells us that we will be changed. Some of you know what it's like to feel pain. Some of you know what it's like to suffer loss. What it's like to experience sickness, to struggle with ailments of all sorts. And all of us know what it's like to feel our remaining corruption. All of us know what it's like to feel our sin that clings to us so closely. All of us know what it's like to cry out with a psalmist that our sins, they prevail against us. But then, then we will be changed. I heard one theologian say that, would we not be in a perfect state, we would be tempted to worship one another because we will be glorious. Yet we know we will be gloriously and forever reconciled with Christ our King. Brothers and sisters, this is our future. This is our hope, this is our certain hope. And this future changes things. It changes your present, it changes how you live your life. You might be thinking that this is hardly a very practical sermon. How am I supposed to apply these truths to my life? Christian, what Paul has described in this text is who you are. He's revealed your identity to you. He's described who you are, namely who you are in Christ. And you see, brothers and sisters, because Christ is your life, this is to change everything. This is to change everything about your life. I fear that many Christians make little progress in the faith because they've grappled little with their identity. They haven't considered who they are and who they are to be They know little growth in Christ-likeness because they know little about Christ. They have low thoughts of the Lord Jesus. And when they look at their lives and see that they look like the world, it's because the world is what holds their gaze. And they don't know how to put off off sin because they don't know what else they're supposed to put on. Brothers and sisters, to be a Christian is to be a new creation. It is to be a person who has died and has been risen with Christ. It's to be a person who with unveiled face beholds the glory of Christ. And that precious sight, that glorious sight changes us from one degree of glory to another. It's to be a person who looks to Jesus fully as the founder and perfecter of our faith. Brothers and sisters, our identity has profound implications. It has profound implications. Understanding the truths about us is what changes us. The reality of our past affects us now. The reality of our present affects us now. The reality of our future profoundly informs our present. As many of you know, my wife Erin and I, we had our first son last year. Uh, Ezra was born last August. And I remember the moment Erin told me that she was pregnant, that uh, there was a baby in her womb. And the reality that there was a baby in her womb that would one day come into the earth and breathe the same air, that changed my life. It changed my life. The reality of our future changed our present, it changed both of our present. We read strange books about childbirth, Erin quit her job, we prepared a nursery, friends and family threw Aaron a baby shower, you ladies at Mount Vernon threw my wife a baby shower. Now, can you imagine if we did any of those things and there was no baby coming? Ladies, can you imagine showing up to my wife's baby shower and saying, when's the baby due? Oh, there's no baby. I just love baby toys, and I love getting baby clothes. That'd be ridiculous. Men, can you imagine helping me build my son's crib and say, when's your son due? Oh, oh, there's no baby, I just love baby furniture. Thanks for helping me out today. That'd be ridiculous, that'd be preposterous, that'd be weird, That'd that'd be insane, that'd be utterly fruitless, except it wasn't. It wasn't fruitless because there was a beautiful baby A beautiful sun that came into the world on August thirtieth, 2019, and that future, that future happily affected our present. It was not fruitless. Brothers and sisters, our hope in Christ's return and the coming glory to follow is as secure as anything. It's as secure as anything. It's truth you can take to the bank when Christ, who is our life, appears. That's a certainty. When Christ who is our life appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. This future affects our present. Brothers and sisters, can't you see how our past and our present and our future is so radically affected by Christ? Let us all the more respond by seeking and setting our minds upon him. Lord Jesus Christ is our life, and this changes everything. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the truths of your word. We thank you that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, if there's anything we need today, it's that we need to know who we are and we need to know your Son, Lord, we pray that you would help us with unveiled face to behold the glory of the Lord more clearly today. And Lord, we pray for this congregation, for the brothers and sisters here at Mount Vernon that they would see that these truths are made manifest clearly in their lives, who they are in the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I pray that this truth would have just a changing effect on all of us here. Father, we ask your blessing on us now and the rest of our worship, we pray in Christ's name, amen.